today with uh, Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, let me read uh, from 11, 7 uh, verses uh, uh, down to verse 8 and 9. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Then verse 9, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 11, we could go on and read the whole chapter, but it's giving us uh, example after example of faith and what faith does. And of course, the first verse that we talked about last time, I argued that faith is the only way open to us to participate in ultimate reality. The substance of things escapes us apart from faith. We cannot apprehend the nature of creation. We cannot begin to approach the reality of God's existence apart from faith. If we ask why this is the case, we get the answer, <clears throat> boy, I don't know what's wrong with me today. <coughs> um, if we ask why this is the case, we get the answer, I think, from the examples set before us. If we go through in each of the instances given, faith opens up a means of rescue, or I think we could state it, of life in face of the reality of death. So if one depended upon a reality obtained apart from faith, or if one depended on visible reality, and in the examples he he gives, you know, people that had been drowned, they had been murdered, they had been martyred in various ways, sawn in two, or just experienced the, the living death, of childlessness like Abraham and Sarah, in this life, death is all that offers itself. Um, And I think you could just, you know, in one way or another, uh, we live in a kind of futility. We all face uh, the futility of sickness, of disease, of old age, of the suffering of children, of, you know, uh, suffering of poverty, of oppression. Maybe it's our own mental suffering. We're all undergoing a kind of futility. And in one way or another, that futility is going to get us all. There's just no question about it. So it's not an issue of whether we're going to suffer. It's not an issue of whether we're going to face this reality. But the idea is, is there something beyond this reality? 
And I think the only way to get to this beyond point is through faith. I recently just did a blog uh, on Martin Luther King Jr. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, they they face the same bleakness, the same futility, the the same poverty of circumstance. Uh, both of them, Martin Luther King, the night junior, the night that he gives his his speech. You know, I've been to the mountaintop, I've looked into the promised land. <clears throat> if you look through the rest of that speech, he knows he's about to t- die. I, I think it's in that speech he refers to some sick white brother that's going to get him he knows they're going to kill him they've threatened him they bombed his house they've threatened him on a daily basis and James Earl Ray has already staked out the Lorraine Hotel and has already got his room in his sights he's going to kill him the next day and Martin Luther King Jr. says I don't care I've seen the promised land So here's a man who, on a daily basis, faced that reality. It's interesting that Dietrich Bonhoeffer does a very similar thing. He pictures Mount Nebo and Moses looking from Mount Nebo into the promised land. And he writes the poem, The Death of Moses. And of course, what Bonhoeffer is portraying is his own imminent death. He's already in prison. He's going to go through a series of three prison camps. He knows they're going to hang him. And yet, he also says, he also gets this vision of seeing beyond that death, of recognizing, I may not get there with you, but the promised land is coming. That's what's pictured in chapter 11, I think. The alternative, I think, is to, in some way, make death. And and you could do this. It's not just a kind of nihilistic thing, oh, and saying death is the end of everything. Because what the religions do for us, what Buddhism and Shintoism and Hinduism and the various religions, and I think what our own psychological instinct is to do, is to some way make death divine. And you can do that, you know, imagining that it's the doorway, it's the answer. I was talking to Alan uh, about the Isaiah passage that describes mot as divine. Mot is just the Hebrew word, as I understand it, for death. And it could have been that they were literally worshiping death. And Alan said, well, in Mexico we do that. In, in and through the Catholic faith, confused with the kind of native religion, we literally, you know, there's literally the shrine to death. And talking to Jeno in India, he said, well, in India we have Kali. And of course she's just the goddess of death. And I think that that is a kind of universal thing that in some way death becomes divine. Now we may not do it in our religion. We may just in some way live that way. We may not systematize it. <clears throat> and I, but I think the way we get beyond that is through faith. That faith takes us to the heart of how it is that faith 
you know, or, or that we can defeat the orientation to death that is definitive of sin. Sin is an orientation which in some way accepts the reality of death as final. Of, you know, the man of faith and uh, directly confronts in chapter 5 or in chapter 11 the reality of his imminent death. And we always call this, in the way it's defined in chapter 11, it's resurrection faith. So what is faith? Well, it's always resurrection faith. Resurrection faith doesn't deny or ignore death, but it has faith in the face of death. So the enemy which faith has in its sight uh, is making nothing something, is the way, you know, the idol is nothing, right? In a sense, Paul says we can make money an idol. We can take something that's nothing and make it an absolute something. But you could go through, we could multiply the things that are for the most part nothing and make them an absolute something. It could be wealth, it could be fame, it could be any, any number of things. It's the reification of nothingness, of death, the absolutizing of death uh, that sin then that defines sin and that faith overcomes. So paganism, idolatry, they did this indirectly. Uh, Paul tells us, you know, that the idol, and he's talking to the Corinthians, all of these people are called out of an idolatrous religion, and this idolatrous religion will continually do the same thing. It will picture a closed cosmos, and they're trying to manipulate, you know, death, and life, you know, that's kind of the two things that balance one another out. And they're trying to manipulate those two things. <clears throat> I don't think we live in that period. I don't think after, you know, I think this is the sense of a post-Christian age. That that sort of paganism is no longer a possibility. But I think it's still the same problem. That we still have this orientation to death um, Maybe it's just pure nothingness. This is Friedrich Nietzsche, the, just pure nihilism, atheism. Uh, <clears throat> I think, in a sense, our fallback position in the 20th century, post Christian 20th century, is atheism. I think that's what comes naturally for most people. I don't think that was true in other periods of history. But the enemy is still this lie the law of sin and death is still within us. So it's the same problem. Uh, Maybe it's easier to convince somebody that they're in the thrall to demons and to offer him freedom uh, from that than to convince him, well, actually, you're a slave to yourself. You're a slave to your own uh, will. You're a prisoner to your own thoughts. And it's this God, I think, However, whatever form it takes that faith is directed. God says, you know, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I was frightened. I was naked. I hid. Three words. Fear, nakedness, hiding. And what are we afraid of? What is all of our will, all of our religion, all of our society? I think that psychologically we're geared to in some way ridding ourselves of this fear. 
Fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of failure, fear of deterioration, fear of death. That is that there's futility and suffering and faith is geared to answer that. So when you look at all these kinds of fears, the common denominator is always the fear of in some way being pushed down, of being shamed, of being valueless, of being uh, non-existent. Once we name the fear that is deep inside of us, I think we can begin to identify the compulsion that protects us from being pushed down. So, I think what we, faith is over and against, we could pit it against the necessity that seems to present itself in this world. When a Gentile convert stood in the baptistry on Easter's Eve, stood naked, by the way, and turned to the West to renounce the devil and the devil's ministers, he was rejecting and, in fact, reviling the gods he had served all his life. When he turned to the East to confess Christ, he was entrusting himself to the one who had plundered hell of its captives, overthrown death, subdued the powers of the air, and been raised the Lord of history. Life for the early church was spiritual warfare. And no baptized Christian could doubt how great a transformation of the self in the world this involved. It was to consent to serve no other God than him who Christ revealed. And as modern men and women, to the degree that we are modern, maybe we believe in nothing. That is to say that we do not, I'm not saying we don't believe in anything. I mean that we hold an unshakable, if not unconscious faith in nothing. In death, in nothingness as such. And it is this which we placed our trust upon, which we venture our souls upon, which we value, which we measure the meaningfulness of our lives. It may be that this nothingness is reified by wealth, by various notions of patriotism, or to phrase the matter, that our religion is really one of comfortable nihilism. I'm afraid that many times as evangelical Christians, we are more nihilist and we're more atheistic in our practices than anything else. Christ has subdued the world of idols and paganism and nihilism. You know, when Faith and I were in Japan, where gods are continually, the religions are continually being churned up. New religions are continually being founded. Um, It was, I think Christianity still stood as a stark contrast to this kind of idolatrous religion. Uh, But I think in the modern Western world, we live in a a time in which the pagan idea of religion is more or less purged. We don't, uh, and and Christianity has narrowed the field of belief, narrowed it in such a way that we have a very stark choice in the human predicament. We can be oriented to death in any number of ways, or we can have resurrection faith. I think that's the, the contrast we have to have. And so in 12.1, it's going to, we're going to look back in retrospect on chapter 11, how we read this chapter, and it's going to refer to the trial of Abraham. His hardship, I think, is prototypical of faith in chapter 11 and 12. 
It wasn't just any hardship that he endured, but it's linked organically with the inherent demands of faith. That is, we often think of the obstacles that are put in the way of Abraham as being in some way a barrier to faith. I think that's the wrong way to to look at it. Know that Abraham is put in a position he cannot, he's unable to have a child. He's as good as dead. Sarah's womb is as good as dead. Yeah, he's put in the position of recognizing his own incapacity to propagate his life, to propagate his name on his own power. He's facing that reality, the reality of his own demise and death, and he trusts in God. He trusts in the promises of God. So I think there's an exact equation in the text between Abraham's belief and his readiness to accept the reality of his own death. And his own death, of course, not just his death, but his son's death. Because that's the way that he would propagate his name. Then this explains Yahweh's final commendation of Abraham. That he's willing, you know, in chapter 11, that he's willing to offer up Isaac. And the point is that he accepted this. And the writer says that he received back Isaac symbolically from the dead. His death acceptance was his faith. His resurrection faith is faith. And the the other indicator here, you know, that with Abraham, of course, is chapter 11. Here is pure paganism in, in Babel. They're going to propagate their own name through a great city, a great tower, technology, through a kind of unified patriotism. It's all there. It's religion. It's society. It's all there. And the, the story brings to a climax the history you know, of the first 11 chapters. Think of what happened between 1 and 11. You've got the Lamech who's the sociopathic killer. You remember Lamech? He's a a rapper, the first rapper. Ada and Zila, my wives, have killed me a young man. A young man has wounded me. And I've actually, some people think he killed two people because he talks about two people. He's writing death poetry. He's writing murder poetry. He's bragging what a tough guy he is because he's just killed some people. And he says, don't mess with Lamech. If Cain would be avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged 70 times seven. And from there we go into the generation leading up to the time of Noah. They're psychopathic killers. These are natural born killers. I don't, it doesn't even talk about religion. They're just people who are themselves their own narcissistic center of their universe. Actually, maybe pagan idolatry is an improvement. Is that blasphemous? I don't know. That, that in some way Babel organizes them. And after this we see idolatry arising. And there's kind of an organized violence. Prior to that it was a disorganized violence. And that's the generation of Noah that apparently was unredeemable. So the telling uh, is, is culminating in chapter 11 and Abraham and Judaism and Christianity is a departure I think from this picture of the cosmos uh, that uh, is the alternative that is that Babel and Abraham Babel and Judaism uh, are stand over and against one another 
And Abraham throws light then on the new world of deliverance that Yahweh promised and Babel denied and is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. The, the contrast is chapter 11. They would build a city and a tower with its top in the sky and make a name for themselves. And you know, chapter 12, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing to all the communities of the earth. The faith of Abraham is our faith. He is the prototype of Christian faith. Now, what this gets to is there's two sacrificial models in this whole thing. And that's what, you know, chapter 11 is all about people dying a martyr's death. They're being sacrificed for their faith. I think sometimes we confuse these two things. Israel's God does not require that kind of sacrifice. He creates, he elects, he sanctifies without the need for any kind of sacrifice of that order. And we've talked about the atonement, the the sacrifice of atonement. It is in no way like these pagan sacrifices. It is instead a penitent approach to God who gives life freely. And the giving, again, is a kind of, you know, it's a sacrificial motif in in Hebrew scripture. This self-giving love that you find among Joseph in contrast to his brothers that you find in the two prostitutes that Solomon is confronted with. One is willing to relinquish her right to her child, and the other is not. It's ultimately in the sacrifice of Christ who gives himself freely uh, that we are to imitate sacrifice. So... uh, the covenant community is established by the movement outwards into places, you know, think of Abraham going out into the land of promise, of Joseph and his, you know, there, there is always this idea of exposing yourself to danger. Noah's building of the ark, it's an exposure to the flood, it's an exposure to death, And yet it's the very confrontation with that reality that saves him. Moses went out from the treasures of Egypt to the wilderness. He's exposed to exile. He's exposed to death. For all of these people, the margin, the place between, is the place of God's dwelling. As the readers are urged in chapter 12, To find God in the place of their suffering. Now don't confuse me here. I'm not saying suffering is redemptive. That futility is inherently redemptive. But we have to be willing to face the reality of suffering. The reality of futility. Because that's precisely where God is going to meet us. So the myth of the cosmos of the universe is a kind of balanced equilibrium And that if we sacrifice the other, then in some way we'll feed the gods. That's the history of the world. You know, this is the Aztecs. They continually, every day they had to sacrifice someone because the sun needed to rise. Uh, This is religion in Japan. It's a fearful thing. You have to sacrifice to build a house. You have to sacrifice to buy a new car. 
Because it's always the case that the demon's death will get you. There is no notion of transcendence. There's no notion of stepping out of the strife between order, disorder, life, death. That it's a sacrificial economy in which the world is held between chaos and order. And we have to keep the order in and through. Well, that's his fault, right? We understand that God holds all things together in and through his powerful word. And so in its modern form, we just you think we're not trading in death still? In America, more than 40 million babies have been aborted since the Supreme Court invented the right that allows for this. And that this there are many for whom this is viewed as a, you know, the idea of a tragic necessity. Uh, is not even entering into it, but it's heralded as some sort of moral truth that we can now sacrifice our children freely. Um, When the Carthaginians were prevailed upon to cease sacrificing the babies, their babies, the place vacated by Baal worship continually stood as a reminder that they were to seek the divine above themselves. We offer our babies to my freedom of choice. And so no society's moral vision, I believe, has been more degenerate than our own. We're still involved in the same sacrificial religion, human sacrifice. It's just that it's not a systematized religious sacrifice. It's just the nihilistic religion of me first. So with Christ came judgment, a light of discrimination for which there is neither retreat nor sanctuary. And this means that the only choice that remains for the children of post-Christian culture is not whom to serve, but whether to serve him whom Christ has revealed or to serve nothing, the nothing, and death. So Christian theology taught from the first that the world was God's, that it is called from out of nothingness, not out of any need on God's part, but by grace. The world adds nothing to the being of God, and so nothing need be sacrificed for his glory or sustenance. And so I believe it's this necessity of the sacrifice, the necessity of of death over and against faith. The cross of Christ is not simply another sacrifice, but the place where two opposed sacrificial systems clash. Christ's whole life was a reconciling, an approach to the Father, a real indwelling of God's glory in the temple of Christ's body, and an atonement made for a people enslaved to death. We're always enslaved to the same God. And in pouring himself out in the form of a servant and in living his humanity as as an offering up of everything to God in love, this was the shape of his life. Uh, His death was simply a continuation of this loving sacrifice. And it was this absolute giving that was made complete at Golgotha. Now is the judgment of the world, John says. Now will the principle principle of this world be cast out. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. 
He is far above, Paul says, all principality and power and might and dominion, and all things are put under his feet. Having spoiled principalities and powers, Paul says in Colossians, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them. He led captivity captive. What has held us captive? The orientation to death in which we would slay the other for our own selves. We can largely absorb scripture's talk then of the defeat of the devil, the angels, of the nations, the powers of the air, and yet fail to recognize how radically the gospels reinterpreted, Nietzsche would say transvalued, everything in the light of Easter. We live in a very different world. How we die then is one indication, maybe the prime indication of the economy of faith pictured in Hebrews. The way faithful Christians die is the most contagious aspect of what being a Christian means. Justin Martyr says, the more we are persecuted, the more do others in ever-increasing numbers embrace the faith and become worshipers of God through the name of Jesus. Tertullian says, Just as when one cuts off the fruit-bearing branches of the vine, it grows again, and uh, other blossoming and fruitful branches spring forth, so it is with us Christians. By the end of the century, you know, is the very idea, you understand, witness and martyrdom are the same word. And it gives us the what amounts to a rationale uh, that your tortures accomplish nothing. Though each is more refined than the last, rather they are enticements to our religion. We become more numerous every time we are hewn down by you. The blood of Christians see, Tertullian says. So it was the martyrs themselves, and this is, this is a chapter of martyrdom who redefined witness, who redefined martyrdom, confirming as they did the New Testament bond between accepting death and witnessing to the gospel in the world. Our life has to be a walk of continual death acceptance, of embracing the reality of this world's futility. And this is definitive of the self-giving sacrifice, which reverses the sacrifices of, you know, the other of the world on the basis and how do we do this through resurrection faith. The resurrection faith of Abraham, Sarah, Noah, the martyrs that face death are ultimately realized then through the faith of Christ who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ who died and was raised again. Let's sing.